as we begin this message. Um, I used this illustration once before. Um, it was the illustration of the mirror and the magnifying glass. Does anybody remember that one? That uh, when we encounter God's word, whether that's written or through prayer or in a sermon setting, we can use it as a mirror or as a magnifying glass. Now, I lost my magnifying glass. I thought that I had one, and I remembered this morning that I borrowed one, and it was a little late to uh, scramble around and get one. And as I was thinking about that, I was like, you know, I think it's okay. Because the idea behind the illustration is that God's word should always be a mirror that we use to say, God, search me, know me, not my neighbor. The magnifying glass is when we go and, okay, what's going on over here? Oh, look what, you know, and we talked about this last week with self-righteousness and, and trying to pull the speck out of our brother's eye with the, the plank in our own. And so I thought, you know, maybe it's good that I lost the magnifying glass. Maybe that's part of the illustration, that we should lose the magnifying glass But keep the mirror and allow God's word to reveal to us what needs to change in us or how we can lean in even more to him and to all that he has for us. And if we're really brave, we can get that magnifying glass and hold it between the mirror and ourselves and say, God, really search me deeply and know me. Reveal anything to me that does not uh, line up with your will. Well, this series has, has been sort of a mirror and a magnifying glass sort of series. It's a series titled Selfless, where we are talking about dying to ourselves. And that's been uncomfortable at times. And people have, have said, boy, Pastor, that, that was a tough one to hear. But I, I'm glad that I heard that message. Um, and other people have just sat and glared at me. I'm, I'm joking. Nobody's <laughs> glared at me. But... Uh, We've talked about being self-centered and that we live in a self-centered society. We've talked about being self-righteous in our religion, in our trying to earn God's favor. And sometimes we mistake uh, being a little better than somebody else for actually having right standing with God through Jesus Christ. And so we've talked about that and we've talked about last week about being self-sufficient. That we have an enemy who wants us to be convinced that we don't need anything from anybody else. And we certainly don't need salvation from God moment by moment, needing his grace. And so we've been talking about some difficult subjects that all have to do with our ego, our false self, our sin nature. There's a number of different uh, terms that have been attached to it in scripture and in psychology. But the idea is that we have a self and that self is infected with sin. And we have to get over ourselves in order for God to do what he wants to do in us and through us. And so as we've looked at this series, uh, we've looked at different functions of the ego or the sin nature because we need to know what it is so that we can move past it, so that we can die to it, so that we can let it decrease, that we might increase, that the spirit might have greater reign in our lives. And so today we're going to be talking about a self-aware awakening, a self-aware awakening, or awakening to self-awareness, shining the light. We've been doing this the last three weeks, shining the light on our self and how it works and the different ways that it functions. And that can be painful. It can be painful to see how much our ego impacts our lives and how often we are in opposition to someone or something instead of in partnership with the Holy Spirit. And so that can be painful, but that can also be incredibly valuable. I came across the quote this week from uh, another pastor, and uh, his name is Ian Crone. 
And he wrote this. He said, if you ask 100 people if they're self-aware, most will smile and say, of course I am. But research tells a different story. On average, only about 13 of those 100 people are actually able to both identify and challenge the bogus, unconscious beliefs underlying the way they think, feel, and act. That's what we've been talking about. And the other 87, they're living on autopilot, unconsciously playing out habitual patterns that are harming their relationships, limiting their career opportunities, and keeping them trapped in a less than optimal life. So that's why we're talking about this today, because our ego would much rather fly under the radar. It would much rather, rather be on autopilot, as he said, where we externalize all our problems, where we discredit anybody who challenges us, people like me, maybe, where we rationalize, where we make excuses, where we participate in whataboutism, where it's like, well, yeah, but what about this? This is worse. You know, the ego always wants somebody or something that's worse than us. Because the enemy doesn't want us to be aware of our sin nature. The enemy doesn't want us to get off of autopilot and to turn the reins over to our Heavenly Father through the person of the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us into the truth. How many of you have read the screw tape letters or have heard of the screw tape letters? It's a book, but I see a good number of hands going up. That's encouraging. It's a book by C.S. Lewis, and it's, the premise is screw tape is a sort of a junior devil. Or maybe screw tape's the uncle. Screw tape's the, the senior devil, the experienced devil, and his uh, nephew, Wormwood, is a junior devil. And so screw tape is writing letters to this other devil on how to trip people up and how to get their subject, this person that Wormwood is trying to keep from growing in a relationship with Christ, how to get him to do that. And over and over he says, you know, just divert his attention. Just give him a focal point of somebody who's worse or some way that he's better. Or if that doesn't work, then bring in shame and, and self-deprecating uh, view of, of himself. And, and over and over you see all these different ploys of the enemy to trip us up, to distract us, to get us off course, to get us away from the life that God wants us to have. And so in some ways you could say, well, then is it really my fault if there's spiritual forces of wickedness that are plotting against me and trying to trip me up, is it all my, well, no, it's not all your fault. But as Seth Godin says, it may not be your fault, but it might be your responsibility. And changing it will be your responsibility. And so as we awaken to ourself and to our ego and to the ways in which we have been led astray, it becomes our responsibility to lay those at the feet of Jesus, to ask him to replace those uh, with with his will for our lives, to replace those with an awareness of who we are, who we are. Because the enemy wants us to have the magnifying glass and wants us to be hyper-aware of ego and everybody else. And I see this as well, and I participate in this as well, that often it's a lot easier to see somebody else's ego, somebody else's sin nature, somebody else's false self arising than it is to see my own. But I came across a quote, and I wish I could tell you who said it. I went to try to research it to find it. But the quote went something like this. It said, the wise war against their own ego. The fools war against everybody else's. The wise are wise because they have become aware of their own ego and how influential it is. And they do war against their own ego. 
Whereas the foolish people are, are not aware of their own ego. They're aware of everybody else's and they're doing war and in conflict with everybody else's. If you find out who said that, I would love to, to hear it. I, I, I searched it, I googled it in a number of different ways and couldn't find it. But in so doing, I was reminded of Solomon's words in Proverbs chapter 9. I'll read those to you. You don't necessarily need to go there. Uh, we're not going to study them necessarily specifically. Um, but here's what he says. He kind of reverses the order. He says, whoever corrects a mocker invites insult. Whoever rebukes a wicked man incurs abuse because the foolish are at war with everybody else. But... Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Instruct a wise man, and he will be wiser still. Teaching a righteous man, teach a righteous man, and he will add to his learning. Because the wise are at war with their own ego. The wise are at war with their own sin nature, with their own false self. And when you show them something about their ego, about their false self, about their nature, they are grateful. They are thankful. Not so the foolish, not so the mocker, not so the wicked. When you point something out in them that is not as it should be, they don't appreciate it, and they let you know with insults and with abuse. And the litmus test becomes how do people handle a, a loving rebuke? How do people handle being made aware of their false self? How do you, remember, it's a mirror, not a magnifying glass, how do you receive that type of correction? It says a lot about our, our inner nature and what's really in control. I do want to spend some time with uh, one of the verses in the Beatitudes. We've been spending a fair amount of time in the Beatitudes throughout this series, and one of them in particular fits this subject perfectly. It's Matthew 5, 8. If you want to go to page 1501, it's a short verse. It's a familiar verse to many of you, um, but it, it has two parts to it, and we're going to look at those two parts and see what they're telling us about this idea of self Awareness and what it means to awaken to ourselves. Uh, the verse simply says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And so Jesus is saying that those who are truly blessed, those who are recipients of divine favor, those who are to be envied spiritually, that's what that word blessed means. They are those who are pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart versus an outward or ritual uh, purity. You see, there was a lot of that going on, and Jesus was really, uh, really pretty forthright and, and probably as amped up as you see Jesus in the Gospels is when he is confronting the Pharisees who looked perfect from the outside, but inwardly they were filled with envy and jealousy and lust and rage and everything else. And so he's saying, blessed are the pure in heart. To be pure in heart means to be clean, to be innocent, to be unstained inwardly and pure in heart, to have been cleansed by God's Holy Spirit, washed by the blood of Christ, to be made pure in heart in this way. And it's a, it's a subject that his audience would have understood what he was talking about. They would have understood very clearly. It, it, it's a phrase that pops up several times in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 29.1, which Jesus quotes in Matthew 15, verse 8, he says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their, their seat of emotion isn't involved in the worship, in the praise that, that I'm hearing. It's just empty words, essentially. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, uh, the prophet Samuel says, the Lord, 
receives this message from the Lord when he's sent to go and anoint David. He says, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That God can see what's inside. He's not impressed with the facade if it does not match what's going on internally. And finally, Psalm 24, verse 3 and 4. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. And it's a good reminder that the idols of today are not necessarily the same idols of several thousand years ago, where it might be a little carved statue or something that made by a metal worker. The idols today are image and maybe success and uh, perhaps materialism or career or public opinion. These are all things that we can make idols of, and we lift our soul up to those to the detriment of our spirit. And so Jesus is saying, these are the ones that will see God. The second half of that verse, for they will see God. They are those who are pure in heart, who are inwardly pure, who have been cleansed. And I believe that the word see has two different meanings. When he talks about seeing God, I think that there is a literal meaning which will happen eventually. We will literally see God in heaven and we will praise him forever and we will do exactly what we were created to do for eternity. Those who are pure in heart, who have received forgiveness through Christ, who have let him pay the penalty for our sins, we are pure in heart. We will see him literally for eternity in heaven, eventually. But I think there's also a figurative meaning when he says that the pure in heart will see God. There's a figurative meaning that we will see him constantly, that we will see his activity in the world constantly, that when we have been cleansed, when we have been forgiven, when we have been set apart for the Holy Spirit, and when we are walking in step with the Holy Spirit, we see opportunity. We see God's handiwork. We see God's activity everywhere. We see needs that we are uniquely qualified to meet. We see ways that we can come alongside others and encourage them and strengthen them. We see God figuratively everywhere we look when we're pure in heart because the Spirit is giving us eyes to see. The Spirit is, is unleashing its fruit within us where we can come alongside others and encourage and strengthen them. Paul speaks to this this figurative, this literally, this dichotomy of the two, the eventual and the constantly in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. That's the love chapter. And towards the end of the love chapter, he says, Now we see but a poor reflection, as in a mirror, but then eventually we shall see face to face. Now I am known in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. There is a now... And a not yet. That as we grow in grace, as we grow in our relationship with Christ, as we grow in that purity of heart and the impurity is cleansed away and the purity rises forth, there is a now and a not yet. We can now see God and see his activity in the world and see him intersecting our life story leading up to the moment of salvation and intersecting the life stories of the people around us leading up to their Salvation, But we can also look forward to that day, to the not yet, when we will see him face to face, when we will see him fully and know him fully. And that motivates us and that encourages us and that spurs us on 
as we grow in this awareness of ourselves and of God. Now, I shared a a chart. I like charts. I'm a visual learner. And so every now and then I put a graphic or a chart up there that helps us to understand how the interaction between God awareness and self-awareness works. I shared this uh, last year in the Christmas um, Advent series, uh, but it's a really simple chart. It's a two-axis chart. So on the vertical axis, you have our awareness of God. So our awareness of God is either above average or below average. And then on the the lateral, the horizontal axis, you have our awareness of ourselves. And so there's a midpoint where we either have below average self-awareness or above average self-awareness. And anytime you have a a two-axis chart, you get four quadrants. And so you can understand kind of where different people fall in their God awareness and self-awareness by where they might land in this chart. And it's could be a scatter plot, and you could really just focus on, on where do you land on this chart. And so in the first uh, section that we could look at would be uh, what we might call fatalism, where it's all up to fate, where we have a, a very high awareness of God or a very high um, awareness of his activity in the world, uh, his sovereignty, and a very low awareness of ourselves or a very low view of ourselves and, and the part that we have to play in our destiny, in our activity. And so you might say ultra-high view of sovereignty, ultra-low view of human, uh, humanity, of free will, would be in this fatalism. It's all scripted. We're just kind of marching through a script, and it's all sort of pointless if that's your view, uh, unless, uh, unless God is for you, <laughs> which he is, trust me. But if you don't see your part to play or think that you have any responsibility whatsoever, you're going to have a very fatalistic view of yourself and of the world around you. The next one at bottom bottom cord, corner, bottom left corner, this would be nihilism. You probably haven't used the word nihilism in the last week, um, but it has to do with meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Nothing matters. There's a very low view of God, a very low awareness of God's activity in the world, and a very low view of self, and a very low uh, view of my activity in the world. It's just all meaningless. And, and that's where we get the word annihilation, N-I-H-I-L, nil. It's, it's at the root there. It's, it's nothingness, nil, ex nilio. It's, it's that Latin root for absolute nothingness. And so if God is not active in the world and we are not active in the world, we will have a view of nihilism. And a lot of atheists have this. They fall on one or two of the bottom two quadrants um, where just it's all meaningless. What's the point? There's no point. There's no purpose to life. There's no purpose to anything. I might as well get as much pleasure, as much accumulation of, of experience and of resources as possible, but it's all meaningless. It doesn't even matter. And then if you move over to the other quadrant, and I know this sounds like a country song or something, it's a sad story, these quadrants uh, that we can be in. But the next quadrant would be the quadrant where we have uh, narcissism. That's where we have a really low view of God and a really low awareness of God and his activity in the world, but an ultra-high view of ourselves. So this is the teenage pop star uh, mentality that it's all about me and the world revolves around me and the only radio station I listen to is WIIFM. What's in it for me? FM, right? Get it? It's a joke. It's okay. But you know narcissists, and they are... They are hyper aware of everything as it interacts with them personally, but no awareness of anybody else and no awareness of God's activity in the world. 
And so what's in that fourth quadrant, you might ask? That fourth quadrant is what we call co-creation, where we have a high view and a high awareness of what God is doing in this world through Scripture, through prayer, through uh, fellowship with other believers, through serving Him and finding out how He is working and we're walking in step with the Spirit. But we also have a high awareness of ourselves, a high awareness of, of how the world interacts with us and how we interact with the world. We know what's going on internally and we know what's going on externally. We know how we are responding to the world, how our true self is responding to the world, the part that Christ is in, the part that the Spirit is leading, but also how our false self is responding to the world. And we make course corrections and we apologize and we humble ourselves when we get out of line. All of this is happening in that upper right-hand quadrant where we, where we have co-creation. And that's the verse I mentioned uh, from the membership class that This Ephesians 2.10, that we were created to do good works, that we are his masterpiece, we are his workmanship, that the body of Christ was created to do good works that God planned beforehand for us to do. And so co-creation, that up and to the right quadrant, is us discovering who God is and who we are in relationship to him and what he has for us to do, where he is active in the world and where he wants us to be active in the world. And there's a squiggly line there because as we grow more aware of God, we understand new things about ourselves and who he created us to be because we were created in his image. So if you understand the God in whose image you were created in better, you start to understand yourself better. And as you understand yourself better, you are more aware and more able to understand God as he truly is because now you're living in the true self. Now you're living in the spirit, not the flesh. And now you can see things. You have your spiritual eyes are opened progressively as you follow him. And that's why each time you grow in self-awareness, you grow in God-awareness. And each time you grow in God-awareness, you can grow in self-awareness. And a theologian named Craig Barnes has said it this way. He said, you can only... Surrender what you understand of yourself, what you know of yourself, to what you know of God. You can only surrender what you know of yourself, your true self, your false self, what you know of who you are, to what you know of God. And so as you understand yourself better, you have more to surrender to Him. And as you understand God better, you can surrender more completely to this God that you can trust, that is your, your hope and your eternity is secure within Him. And so this is a dynamic relationship. It's more like a dance. That's why there's this ebb and flow and this give and take that we can surrender more of who we are as we understand more of who we are to the God that we understand better. I wish, and I have prayed many prayers like, God, I want to surrender everything. I want to surrender even the parts of myself that I'm not aware of. And yet they pop up, and then I become aware of them, and then I have an opportunity to surrender them to him anew. And as I understand him better, I have a deeper longing to be more fully and more completely surrendered to him. And this has become a daily habit of mine. Every time that I write in my journal, the last two lines, when I get to those last two lines of paper, I write out the the statement that says, O Lord, this day I surrender my whole self completely to you to be your servant forever. That whatever you have revealed to me in the last 24 hours, I want to be sure to surrender that to you as well. And each day, I repeat that exercise. And each day, I go through the process of surrendering anew and afresh to him. 
And I still managed to mess up. And I still managed to do things. And I'm like, where did that come from? That wasn't surrendered, obviously. I need to surrender that too now. And I think past, uh, the Apostle Paul nails this beautifully in 2 Timothy chapter 2. So I want to close with this passage where we see him pulling all of this together, everything that we've looked at so far. And I'll read this passage to you. It's page 1854 in the, the blue hardcover Bibles. Um, and then we'll look at a few verses in particular. But he writes to, to Timothy. This is Paul, a senior pastor, writing to Timothy, a junior pastor. So it provides an interesting contrast to our screw tape letters where we had a senior devil writing to a junior devil. This is Paul being the senior pastor, the elder pastor, writing to a younger pastor. And he says, flee the evil desires of youth. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him must be, he, those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. And so in verse 22, Paul is basically saying, pursue holiness, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. But he says to do it with and among and in the fellowship of those who are pure in heart. He's saying there are others who are pure in heart. There are others who have been cleansed. There are others who are in the family of God. And you can pursue the love, the faith, the righteousness, the peace along with them, in fellowship with them. You see, we truly are better together. That when you come alongside others who are pursuing the faith and the love and the peace and the righteousness of God, that we can do this better together. But there are two two factors that are involved in this. First is awareness. If you're going to pursue these things, you have to have that sense of awareness. You have to have that desire. And then you have to intend to do it. Awareness and intentionality make a really good combination. That if you're asking God to make you aware of the areas where you can grow, where you can pursue Him, where you can pursue love and faith and peace and righteousness, that He will reveal that to you. And there's a great deal of progress that comes when we have some awareness And some intentionality. I often say adults tend to do what adults intend to do. Adults tend to do what adults intend to do. And sometimes people, oh, I'm so sorry, I missed that thing, or I was late, I meant to be there. Okay, but you didn't intend to be there, because if you had intended to be there and were intentional about being there, you probably would have been there. Now, I know accidents happen and you know, things come up that are unexpected, but by and large, adults tend to do what we intend to do, and we tend not to do what we do not intend to do. And when we take awareness and we combine it with some intentionality and we get serious about this, we can make tremendous progress in a short amount of time. It doesn't take a long time to make big gains. And when we do it along with others who are pure in heart, others who are seeking God out of a pure heart, then we can do even more together than we can ever do apart. 
In verse 23 and 24, I see functions of the ego contrasted by functions of the spirit. And so we see in these, these two verses that, that the ego leads us towards arguments. It leads us towards quarrels and towards being resentful. That we can tell right away when we get irritated or when we get annoyed that our ego is involved. Because our true self, the spiritual self, is unoffendable. It doesn't get annoyed. It doesn't get irritated for no reason. But when we start to get irritated, our, the toe of our ego has been stubbed. Or something has happened that has caused our ego to rise up. And we begin to get into arguments and to quarrels and to be resentful. But the Spirit, the Spirit leads us towards being kind, being able to teach, being able to gen- gently instruct others. And so all of this is working together with each other. And we see in verse 25 and 26 that we trust the results to God. Because the ego does not want to trust the results to God. The ego wants to make its point. The ego wants to assert itself instead of allowing God to be God and to be in the place of confronting someone or judging someone. That we can leave those safely to God. And so our bottom line today is that quote that I shared from Craig Barnes. I think this is one of the best... uh, things that we can learn and really apply to our lives is this idea that the more we know of God and the more we know of ourselves, then the more we can surrender of ourselves to God. Our bottom line today is you can only surrender what you know of yourself to what you know of God. And as your awareness of yourself and of God grows, then your understanding of yourself and your understanding of God grows. And as your understanding of yourself and of God grows, then your acceptance and appreciation for yourself and who you, he created you to be. And your understanding and appreciation of who God is. And he, how he has reached out to you. And how he has desired that you would be in relationship with him. That grows as well. And we can in, then surrender more of ourselves to this God that we understand better. So awakening is the first step. Awakening to our ego becomes the first step. And saying, God, would you search me? Would you know me? Would you show me what needs to change? Would you show me where my ego is at work? Where my false self takes me off course and out of your plan for me. And then as we grow in God awareness, as we grow in self-awareness, that becomes a lifelong pursuit. We don't finish There was an arrow at the top there of that quadrant that we grow in God-awareness and we grow in self-awareness. Then we grow in God-awareness, then we grow in self-awareness. And we never finish. We never stop. We never graduate from it. There's always more to know of God. And there is always more to know of ourselves. And so we get to know God better, like I said, through Scripture, through prayer, through worship, through fellowship, through service, through studying His Word, through doing it in community. As Paul wrote to Timothy, to pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with, that's the vision for the church, that we would all be pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace together with pure hearts. And we grow in our self-awareness through prayer, through dialogue with God, through, through asking him to reveal to us, to waiting for him to reveal himself to us. 
I talk about journaling all the time. Journaling is one of the greatest ways for me to grow in self-awareness, to ask God what he wants to reveal to me and then to wait with a pen in my hand and to observe what comes out and then to read those journal entries a week or two later or a month later and see what God has been revealing to me about him and about me as I have been engaged in that. But sometimes we need help too. And I'll make another plug for counseling. I'll make another plug for a Christian counselor or a therapist, somebody that can dialogue with you and is specially trained to help you see what you can't see in yourself, to help you see the blind spots, and we all have them. And we need a good friend or a good brother and sister in Christ or a good counselor or therapist because sometimes it can't be our spouse. Sometimes it can't be an adult child that can point out this blind spot in us. That that's a little too much for the ego to handle, but, but a skilled counselor or a good friend can reveal to us what we cannot see ourselves. And so I would encourage you, however you choose to respond to this message, that, that you choose to respond in faith and say, God, would you reveal more of who you are to me? And would you reveal more of who I am so that I can surrender it to you? And if you're here today and you've never surrendered to Christ, you have a perfect opportunity. We're going to be celebrating baptism with five people who have said, I am a believer in Jesus Christ and I want my church family to know it. And I want anyone and everyone to know it. I want to make a public profession of my faith. Today can be the day of salvation. Today can be the day that you take the step of baptism. If you felt God nudging you on that in the past and you've never stepped forward, then my prayer would be that today would be a day you'd meet Pastor Zach right back there by those two doors. He's going to wave. Yeah, you know Pastor Zach. Meet him back there. He will visit with you briefly. We have clothes that you can change into. We've got a t-shirt that we'll give you, and then you can change back into your, your clothes that you wore here. If you want to be baptized today, head back to Pastor Zach as we sing this closing song. But however you choose to respond, my prayer is always that we would be a people who respond in faith to God's word, that we would respond in faith to what he has revealed to each of us about himself and about us. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for your infinite nature. And that in that infinite nature, you chose to reveal yourself to us. And our appropriate response to that is to worship you, to worship you with everything that we are. And as we become increasingly aware of ourselves and the unique and complicated beings that we are made in your image that we would surrender what we understand of ourselves to what we understand of you and that we would be a people who consistently and continually surrender who consistently and continually ask you to reveal yourself to us in greater measure and to reveal ourselves to us in greater measure help us to be a people hungry to grow in righteousness, faith, love, and peace, and to do it together. We love you, Lord. We praise you and thank you, for you are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.